Welcome back to Catholic Doctrine Bible Study. This is session 22. I'm your host, Jim Hawk. In this session, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 17, where we'll see Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. And we'll also answer the question, what does it mean when Jesus says, if you have faith, you can move a mountain? So unless you're driving, turn to Matthew chapter 17. And here we have it. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. You know, even though Jesus has 12 apostles, we see that Peter, James, and John are kind of his uh, most intimate friends. And of course, Peter, as we know, is chosen to be uh, the rock, as we studied in uh, our last lesson, uh, the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. So Peter has additional insights uh, at times that the other apostles are not privy to at that time. Um, so it says in verse two, and he, meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them conversing with him. Okay, let's stop a moment here. So remember that we said that Matthew, one of Matthew's goals is to show that Jesus is the Messiah of the, uh, that was promised to the Jewish people. He is, in fact, the Messiah for all of us, but he's emphasizing the connection between the Old Testament and the New. And this is one more example where Matthew shows that Jesus is the newer, better Moses, if you will. So who's involved in this? We see that uh, Jesus appears along with who? Moses and Elijah. So Moses represents the law to the people of Israel. Uh, you know, Moses is the one who gets the Ten Commandments on a mountain, by the way, which they are on now. And uh, so Moses delivers the, the law to the people. Elijah is a representative of all of the prophets. So Jesus is standing with the law and the prophets of, uh, of the Old Testament, if, if you will. And uh, so, by the way, if you're feeling sorry for old Moses, because uh, we haven't studied the Old Testament yet, but perhaps you have on your own, and you'll know that Moses leads his people to where he can see the promised land, but Moses never gets to enter the promised land himself in the Old Testament. But the good news is we see here that Moses is in the promised land of Israel. He appears uh, as along with Jesus and Elijah on this mountain. So he didn't get to do it during his earthly life, but Moses does get to go to the promised land uh, in the afterlife, if you will, because obviously at this point, Moses has been dead for, you know, 15, 1600 years, something like that. But he appears with Jesus in the transfiguration. So Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is the newer, better Moses. He appears along with the law, 
wrote Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. Okay, so Moses made it to the promised land after all. And that's hope for us too, right? Because our ultimate fulfillment with Christ, as with Moses, is not during this life, but in the life to come, if we are faithful to uh, Christ and, and have that relationship with him. Okay. Um, uh, other examples of where this, this parallels um, the life of, of Moses there, it says in what we just read at the beginning of chapter 17 of Matthew, that um, it says that uh, Jesus, um, uh, this occurred on the seventh day, because it says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his, his brother uh, John up on the mountain. And there's a mountain experience. Both of those you'll see in Exodus chapter 24, a parallel with, uh, with Moses. Um, both Moses and Jesus take companions with them, uh, with him, with each of them on their uh, respective mountain uh, journeys. Um, and it says, both of their faces shine with God's glory. Uh, I don't know if we've gotten there yet. Both have a cloud of God's glory over them, and God speaks to both in a heavenly voice. Uh, let's let's read on, and we'll see all of those last three things. Um, so Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah. Verse four. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, "Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here." one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wants this moment to continue on. I mean, imagine Peter uh, and the other two who are, who are devout Jews to be able to see Moses and Elijah. And they're thinking, wow, our guy, Jesus, is ranked right up there with, you know, the, the chief spokesman for the law and the, uh, the representative of all the prophets. This is so cool that our guy is in the same category as these other two. So he wants to build three tents because he wants the moment to last for forever. He wants to, hey, let's spend some nights together here. Um, but while he was still speaking, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Again, we see the Exodus experience. Um, again, here, cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, uh, also, in the Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, God appears to the people and says, listen to him, meaning listen to Moses. Okay, so at this point, the, these three disciples are, are thinking, okay, so Jesus is on equal level with these other two. But um, even though they've been told, listen to Jesus. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. So Jesus remains after the other two have, have gone away. Jesus is greater than either of those. Uh, verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been uh, raised from the dead. 
Now in the Mark account, if you want to make a note in your uh, in your Bible, Mark chapter 9, verse 10, it says, they questioned among themselves what the rising from the dead meant. You know, because in in the Jewish tradition in which they were raised, it was really unclear about what the afterlife was. Some Jews thought there was no afterlife at all. That when you uh, when you lived, you know, your reward or punishment for a good life was uh, exclusively to be found on this earth. Some thought that there was some kind of nebulous afterlife, but they weren't really clear on what that was. So they, the, 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 these three guys, these three apostles didn't really understand it uh, themselves, but they will, okay? Jesus repeatedly tells them, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they kind of look at that. They can't experience, you know, they can't relate to that. They've, they've never seen anything like that. And that will be a life-changing experience for them and ultimately for us as we have our own encounter with the uh, with the risen Christ. Uh, verse 10, then the disciples asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay, he's, uh, they, they know their Bibles. So if you look in Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 23, if you have the NAB, uh, says that uh, Elijah will you know, will come before the, before the Messiah. Elijah, you may, well, we will study Elijah was taken up on a chariot of fire. We see that in Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 2, verse 11, and was thought to uh, come again before the Messiah. You can read more about Elijah in First and Second Kings. We'll get there when we study the Old Testament. But for now, it's important just to know that he was kind of thought to be the ultimate prophet, if you will, of the uh, of the Old Testament. Okay, so uh, verse eleven, Jesus said in reply, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So will the Son of Man suffer at their hands. So Jesus is saying, hey guys, I've got to go suffer. He, you'll recall last uh, chapter, in chapter uh, 16, Jesus said the same thing. And uh, the apostles are trying to wrap their hands, wrap their arms around this idea that Jesus will, will have to suffer. Though many times in the Old Testament, it refers to the Messiah having to suffer. Uh, verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist kind of is the new Elijah, if you will, the announcer of, of the Messiah. Okay, moving on, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man approached, knelt down before him and said, Lord, have pity on my son, for he has a lunatic and suffers severely, often he falls into fire and often into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus said in reply, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Okay. How long will I endure you? So I think even Jesus gets a little frustrated at times with the apostles. He keeps trying to tell them, hey, I've got to suffer. I've got to die. And they kind of look at him like, I don't 
understand what you're what you're talking about. He keeps talking to them about faith and they don't quite understand it. They will, but they're not there yet. Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him. And from that hour, the boy was cured. Then the disciples approached Jesus in private and said, how could we not drive it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, amen, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all plant uh, seeds, at least known at that time, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Okay, now we get to the crux of the matter. If you watch televangelists on television, non-Catholic televangelists, you will hear them uh, espouse this, this uh, verse and, and say, hey, if you just have faith, you know, God's going to give you wealth, he's going to give you health, he's going to give you happiness, he's going to give you prosperity and all that. And, and it appears that Jesus is saying that here. If you just have enough faith, you'll be able to move a mountain. Nothing will be impossible to you. Well, what is he talking about? Well, what preceded that? The desire to do good works for Christ's kingdom. They're wondering, how come I couldn't heal this person? We will see that as Peter's faith is strengthened, uh, after he sees the risen Christ— who has risen from the dead, we will see that Peter does have the power to, uh, to heal people. So his faith improves. What does that mean to you and me? I would suggest this to you. Christ's promise is true. If you want to do something for the kingdom, you just ask Christ, what can I be doing for the kingdom? And he will give you the power to make an impact for the kingdom of God, which is what we're all here for. Now, it may not be as dramatic as, you know, curing, you know, kicking a demon out of a person, but you can have an impact for Christ. And if you pray each day that uh, Christ, show me where I can have an impact for you in this world. Show me where I can have an impact on another person. I promise you, he will put situations in you, in your place, in your vision, where you can make a difference for Christ. It doesn't mean that you will get a new Mercedes Benz necessarily. Uh, it doesn't mean that you will get selfish, uh, earthly things for yourself, or or even perhaps uh, improved health or wealth or things of that nature. But if you have faith that Christ will give you the power to make a difference in his kingdom, I promise you, Christ will give you the graces, the strength, and the vision to make good things happen for his kingdom. So it's not a prosperity gospel. Again, if Jesus were preaching a prosperity gospel, um, I don't think uh, the apostles themselves, or Jesus for that matter, uh, would be an example of that on this earth. Christ was nailed to a cross and dialed an indescribably painful death. Uh, the apostles all but John died indescribably painful uh, deaths. They were all martyred. So their life on this earth uh, wasn't all a bed of roses, but yet 
they did make a difference for Christ as their as their faith uh, developed. Okay, so glad we've uh, cleared that up. Then Jesus gives them the second prediction of the passion. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, if they didn't hear it the first time, uh, which was in uh, Matthew 16, the son of man is to be handed over to men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So he tells them again on the third day and they were overwhelmed with grief. They still didn't totally get it, but they didn't like the idea that Jesus was going to be killed by, by men. Now we have another curious story. This is the only miracle that I can think of that Jesus does for his own benefit. All the other miracles that Jesus has done and does in the New Testament um, are for the benefit of others. Let's read on. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax approached Peter, again the leader, and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now this isn't a tax to the Roman government. This is a tax like a church tax, if, if you will. Uh, the temple, temple tax. So in other words, a tax that is charged by the, uh, you know, by the Jewish uh, leaders there, okay? Uh, yes, he said, um, but he doesn't really know. Peter just says, yeah, Jesus pays that. Uh, when he came into the house, before he had time to speak, Jesus asked him, what's your opinion, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take tolls or census tax? from their subjects or from foreigners? When he said from foreigners, Jesus said to him, then the subjects are exempt. So in other words, does Jesus have to pay the church tax, if you will, when he is the leader of the, of the church? He's starting the church, right? Uh, so when I first heard this, I thought, you know, the first time I read this, I thought, well, this is kind of short sleight of hand. You know, Jesus gets out of paying the tax or, or uses a miracle to pay the tax. We'll, we'll see this miracle now. Verse 27, but that we may not offend them, go to the sea, drop in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, open its mouth and you will find a coin worth twice the temple tax. Give that to them for me and for you. Okay, so God doesn't owe the earthly church leaders anything because it's his house, it's his temple. So uh, he doesn't have to pay this tax at all. And yes, he does do this miracle and there's two, two um, you know, coins in the fish and uh, Jesus uses it to pay, yes, his own tax as well as Peter's, but he really didn't have to pay his own tax, did he? Why did he do it? The reason why he got baptized as an example to us that we're supposed to be good citizens. We're supposed to support our church. We're supposed to pay our taxes to the government, etc. So again, when I first saw this story, I thought, hey, you know, that's, I wish I could reach into a fish's belly and get, a, get enough money to pay my taxes. But of course, I'm supposed to support the church. Uh, I'm supposed to support my government. Jesus was, you know, divine. He's there to start the church. It's his house. It's the temple tax and the temple is his house. So he doesn't owe that tax um, because he's God. 
but he pays it nonetheless as an example to all of us. So um, with that in mind, um, that is the end of chapter 17. And uh, so I think we ought to ask, how can we apply this to our, to our own lives? Well, first of all, uh, it's important for us to see that we do need faith if we're going to do things for the, for the kingdom of, of Christ. Even a small amount of faith, like a, a mustard seed amount of, of faith, uh, can get us going where we need to, where we need to go. Uh, we can, in fact, move mountains for Christ. They may not be literal mountains. They may not be personal enrichment mountains, but they can uh, make a huge difference uh, our efforts uh, as guided by Christ in the life of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the church. So we, we need to uh, be aware of, of that. Um, and we also must support our church. We must support uh, our government as well as, as good citizens, as Jesus shows us by example. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, we thank you that you um, exp that you enriched the lives of the apostles and continue in enriching the lives of us by showing that you are greater than the law, you are greater than the prophets, um, that you answer to, to no one except the Father him, himself. Um, we thank you for the healings that you have done uh, for your people, not only physical healings, but uh, the healings even more importantly of, of, our, of uh, our spirit there. And uh, we, we thank you so much that, uh, that you've come to offer us eternal life with, with you. Uh, although we don't totally understand the idea of resurrection, you've given us an example of that. And even though, just as the disciples didn't totally understand that, uh, we have faith that your resurrection gives us an example of what we ourselves can, um, can look forward to. Um, we thank you for this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in our next session, we'll continue on with uh, Matthew uh, chapter 18. And uh, we'll look at uh, who is the uh, greatest in the, the kingdom of heaven. Thank you.